Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. We have a problem. And by we, I mean the church. The church has a problem. And I think the problem has become more pronounced over the last two decades, the last 20 years. For the first time in 80 years that Gallup has been conducting surveys, they found that the percentage of Americans who regularly attend a house of worship has dropped below 50%. It's actually, I think, 47% now. Back in 1999, it was 70%. Now you might say, hey, well, that's a long time, it drops, but for comparison points from 1940 all the way to 1999, 60 years, church attendance only dropped 3%. In the last 20 years, it's dropped 23%. Uh, so that's it's, it's a staggering drop. We definitely have a problem. And some people are attributing the problem to how Closely, churches have been affiliating with certain political parties, and I think that comes into play, but I think the problem goes much deeper than that. Uh, It goes to the fact that many followers of Jesus don't look like Jesus in any way, shape, or form. We we see uh, uh, many prominent Christian leaders around the world falling morally. We see... Uh, Christians on social media just ranting the most unkind, vitriolic things to one another. Uh, we see uh, churches around the world who, who Jesus said should be known for our unity, dividing over masks and vaccines and critical race theory and just on and on and on. There's a recent survey that came out uh, that followers of Jesus, a majority admitted that their allegiance to their political party was higher than their allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom. I was recently uh, reading an article from Salon magazine. I don't read Salon regularly, but it just came across my newsfeed. And it was a staunch atheist author, scholar, arguing that staunch atheists had higher morals than committed Christians. And while committed Christians undoubtedly are devoted to being pro-life to humans in the womb, he argued that outside the womb, on issue after issue after issue, uh, committed Christians align with more of the pro-death position. Now we can get into argumentation and this and that, and that's not the point. It was a hard article to read. It was a difficult article for me to read. I think that we have a problem. I personally, as a pastor, have been deeply burdened by the state of the church. And I've been a pastor for like 25 years, so I've been a pastor during this decline. I'm part of the problem in some way. That is just the truth, and I've done some deep soul searching on that. Um, But I am more convinced than ever and have never stopped doubting that the church is still the hope of the world. I don't see a plan B. And if things are gonna kinda go from their present dumpster fire to uh, flourishing again and looking anything like shalom, 
uh, the church is going to be at the heart of that. I, I truly believe that. And while I'm the problem that has gotten us to this point as a Christian leader, I want to be part of the solution. And if God gives me the grace and the time and the breath, I hope to devote the rest of my days uh, to doing that. I don't know if you remember a movie from 1999 called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Just raise your hand at home if you remember that. Uh, Rick Moranis was, he was a popular actor in those days if you're of that age. I think it was a kind of a family movie and he was like this eccentric scientist that came up with this electromagnetic laser that shrunk things. And the plot was that he accidentally shrunk his kids and the neighbor's kids to like, I think they were like a fourth of an inch. And then the whole movie was realizing that and rescuing them from the lawn and, and insects and all that. It was, it was creative at this time. We watched it with our girls recently and it held up. It was, it was good. It was, I think they came up with a couple different sequels. I'm not sure how great they are. But I think, I think I've kind of figured out what, what the problem is. We have a problem. I think I've kind of figured out the heart of the problem. I think that we have a shrunken gospel. And we'll spend a lot of time today defining gospel. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But for right now, I, I would define the gospel as the heart of our message, like the engine that drives the church, the things that we deeply believe, the story we're part of. And I think that we have a shrunken gospel. When I realized that, and, and this kind of came to me, and this isn't a novel thought, people have been writing on this, I'm, not, I'm certainly not alone in this, but it, it, it came to my mind and heart that I think this is the problem. I was actually hopeful, because <laughs> I was thinking like, okay, I don't think the church is in great shape, we haven't shown up great uh, over this last stretch of time, but we've been looking to a shrunken gospel. Uh, if we were looking to the full gospel, the true gospel, when we were in the state, I think I'd be more discouraged. But I was like, we got to go back and rediscover the good news and rediscover the, what I call the full gospel or the true gospel. And it gave me hope that as we do that, we can become the body of Christ we are called to be. So that's what this series is all about. It's actually two series. So we're going to start today and it's going to go for 12 weeks which is all the way to advent and you're probably thinking what our creative and communication teams thought they're like john that's way too long of a series you can't do a 12-week series so we're cheating a little bit and we're like breaking it in two and this first little series is three weeks and it's called the lost gospel i could have called it the shrunken gospel that seemed like a really weird title that that people wouldn't know what we we're talking about so it's called the lost gospel it's kind of really how we rediscover the good news. And then we're going to take that knowledge of this full true gospel, and we're going to spend nine weeks then looking at how that true full gospel affects literally everything. And each week we'll look at a different type topic like relationships and politics and money and race. And last week we'll look at death and you'll get uncomfortable with some of these topics. But as we understand the full true gospel, I think that we'll create uh, an avenue space, a conversation space that we'll be able to think about these things and see them in a new way. I'm very hopeful. I'm very excited. I think this could be a really, really pivotal series uh, for our church. So if you want a little resource along the way, I, I kind of throw these out for those of you who may be book nerds or really like theology or want to dig deeper, and I encourage that. Um, a little book by, by scholar, New Testament scholar Matthew Bates called The Gospel Precisely just came out. I promise you it's really small. 
at the end of each chapter, there's little questions to talk about. It would be great for groups. It's great for anyone. I really, really enjoyed it. So uh, it's helped frame up these next couple weeks. And I think that if you read it, it would deepen your understanding of experiencing uh, the true or the full uh, gospel. So now pay attention. That's my warning, because I think some of you are hearing like, oh, three weeks on the gospel. I've grown up in church all my life. I know that, John. And here's, here's the warning. I think it's those of us who think we understand the gospel the most that often understand it the least. So pay attention. Buckle up. Are you ready? Here we go. Let me pray for us. God, uh, Spirit of God, we just pray. Um, yeah, we pray for this message today, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would give me your words as people are watching in their homes or listening as they drive in their cars or as they walk the dog or wherever they're experiencing this message. We pray that you would be preparing their hearts and minds and bodies to experience it and hear it. I truly believe we have a problem. I truly believe we have a shrunken gospel. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, stoke our imaginations and our hearts and our minds to seeing how big and beautiful and robust the true gospel is and how it affects uh, literally everything. So I pray this could be a series we could look back on and point to it and be like, man, that series, by God's grace, really redefined who New Hope uh, was as a church. Uh, we ask for that. Uh, that would be a gift, God, and we ask for that gift. Uh, thanks for your great love for us in Jesus, who is uh, our hope and the hope of the world. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, our public reading today will be 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. You can find that at home. Uh, enjoy. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Cool. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Emily. And, and if you have that scripture open at home, I'll return back to it in, in a couple minutes. So just keep that. We'll be going through a lot of scripture rapidly today. So here we go. Uh, so what is the gospel? That's kind of the question that we're going after today in this, this first message of this series. And really, in a way, you could think of, of this first message as an extension of the last series. Uh, what, what does that mean? Uh, we're going to look look really deeply at this word gospel and what that means. The, the Greek word is euangelion. And um, it's kind of, as it, it, it comes on your screen, it's, it's one word, but it's kind of two in the Greek. Uh, the U, the E-U, when that's at the beginning of a word in the Greek, that usually means good something. And then that uh, elion looks like angel, and that's, that's accurate, or messenger. So it's really the word is like good messenger or good message or we've come to just say good news, that that's what euangelion or the gospel means is, is good news. When uh, the shutdown happened, uh, I think, you know, last February, March, it, it all, you know, felt like all hell was breaking loose and you know, what's happening and everybody's, you know, it, it was just crazy. Uh, uh, John Krasinski, in a, a movie actor and from The Office, if you've seen The Office, Jim from The Office, uh, from home, he was, he was on lockdown like everybody else. His wife, Emily Blunt, an actor as well. 
Uh, he, he created this thing called Some Good News. I don't know how many of you remember Some Good News, and it came out on YouTube, and, and he's just, he's literally shooting it in his pajamas and, you know, a camera at home all by himself, and Emily would stick her head in, and then, you know, he's, he's having people join him uh, via video and interviewing, and, uh, but the deal is, he's like, man, there's so much bad news going on, let's tell some good news. And so he began to ask people to send in stories, and oh boy, did they, they came in from all over the world. Uh, one of the episodes, I think, was viewed by 16 million people. Uh, our family, every week when the new one was released, we just get it in our living room and turn it on, and we were so desperate for some good news. I think most of them, I just wept for joy, for laughter, just I was just desperate for some good news. Uh, he, uh, he ended up, I think, raising like $2 million uh, for charity through that, which, which is a good news story. What is the gospel? It's some good news. That is the basic idea of the Greek word as we use it. But it's so much more. And let's get into how scripture uh, frames it up. So what exactly is the gospel? What is exactly the content of the gospel or the goodness? And this is where we get into some problems uh, because this is where we begin to take the gospel that the scriptures put forth, the full gospel, and we shrink it. Or we just totally distort it. And I would call that false gospel. And there's uh, numerous examples of false gospels throughout history, including the first century while the Bible is being written. Paul talks about in two different places false gospels uh, being preached. One instance was a group called the Judaizers, and they, would, uh, they were uh, staunchly Orthodox Jewish folks that would follow Paul as he planted churches in the largely Gentile world and come into those places after he would left and then tell all the, the Gentile converts that they also needed to get circumcised, which that's like not a church growth strategy. Imagine that, you know, you have baptism services and you're like, and now go to the second room on the right and for your circumcision, I mean, like, you're like, why is, why are church attendance numbers dropping? You know, it's like, so that's literally what was going on. And Paul wrote Galatians and he mentions this group in other areas as promoting a false gospel that you don't need to get circumcised or do something like that um, to become a child of God, that, that it's not our works, that it's God's work. So that would be an example in the first century of a false gospel. How do you know false gospels? Well, false gospels are almost always looking inward instead of looking outward to God or looking to self instead of God, looking to our own work instead of the work of Jesus. These are classic ways that we can discern false gospels, and certainly our world is full of those. I think the church actually does pretty well uh, discerning uh, false gospels. Our problem comes with the second category of what I've been calling a shrunken gospel, where we only have a partial gospel, that what we have is truthful, but it is incomplete. So if I, if I gather from across the United States, different area codes, different regions, 100 committed Christ followers, people that went to church regularly, and I, I got them in a room and just ask them the question. Maybe you can answer this question as I ask it. What is the gospel? I think most of them would say something like uh, trusting Jesus or praying to Jesus to forgive my sins or the fact that Jesus died for my sins so that we could go to heaven when we die. Something like that. Um, and then some people might say, praying to invite Jesus in my heart. So a little aside on that line, let's please stop saying that, invite Jesus in our hearts. It's just weird and nobody knows what it means and it's just disorienting. I think it comes from the book of Revelation where Jesus says he's knocking on the door of our hearts, but that's written to a church. It's written to people who are already Christians. It's not about 
the gospel. It just isn't. So, and it's just a weird line. So let's, you know, no shame, but let's stop using that line. But I think most, most Christians say, yeah, that's the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins so that we could go to heaven uh, when we die, something like that. Here's the problem. That's not wrong. That is part of the gospel, and it's an important part of the gospel, but it's incomplete. It's, it's a shrunken gospel. And for a lot of people, that is the gospel. We're done. That I just, in, we just, you know, trust Jesus. We're saved. We, we hold out, and we enter heaven when we die. Um, here's another way to think about how we shrink the gospel. Think of a spectrum. And this has been my experience, knowing people on both ends of the spectrum. Um, more progressive Christians, or maybe that's their ideology or the area of the country they're from, their gospel tends to be uh, around like economic justice and feeding the poor and like social things out in the communities, kind of social justice type things. Like that's their gospel. And you see hardly any in that gospel of personal sin, uh, of personal confession and accountability. And, and so you end up having a shrunken gospel that has a savior that doesn't need a cross. And then the other end of the spectrum are my, my, my more conservative friends. And, and again, I think this would be probably the, the group that gave the original answer. I think their gospel is very much about their own personal sin and their own personal savior. So they end up having a, a gospel that, that uh, they can pray to be saved, but they never become agents of salvation to anyone else or the world. Uh, here's the deal. I think, I think the gospel is both of those spectrums. I think the gospel includes both of those and so much more. Here's kind of the, the one line I want you to give on. And you don't have to agree with this. I'm challenging you as your pastor to, to think with new imagination. And we'll get to scripture. Just hold your horses. Here's what I want you to think. That the gospel is bigger and better than we could ever imagine. That's what I'm trying to prove to you today and over the next couple of weeks, that the gospel is bigger and better than we could ever imagine. All right, we're going to go Bible nerd time. You ready? So I know that all of you, and I hope so, because one of our values is scripture. I'm not up here just telling you what I think about things. We need to define all this stuff from scripture. So we're going we're gonna to jump in. So the, the idea of gospel, we have to first go back to the Old Testament, because the gospel is in the Old Testament. The, the idea, the concept of good news is in the Old Testament. In the good news, God's people, Israel, were often exiled or enslaved. And so for them, the good news was that Yahweh, their God, their king, would come in and uh, rescue them and redeem them and restore them as a people. That was their good news as they understood it. And as they waited for that deliverance, they were looking for a deliverer, or it came to be called the Messiah, or in the Greek, the Christ. That a person would come, a king, a deliverer, to bring the salvation. It's all over, especially all over Isaiah, but here's one instance from the book of Isaiah, a really beautiful passage here. Isaiah 52, this is what the prophet says. This is while God's people are in exile in Babylon. He writes, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. 
the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So that kind of idea is percolating all over the Hebrew scriptures. So then we come into the New Testament and we got to keep that as the background because all these New Testament writers were drenched in the Hebrew scriptures. So they have that in the back of their mind as they're, as they're using this word euangelion or the good news. We also have to talk about the Greco-Roman context in which the New Testament writers preached and wrote the scriptures, including Jesus. What would have been in their mind? How was this word euangelion used? We don't have to guess. Uh, we know this because we have lots of archaeological evidence. Uh, so when they would use this word in the Greco-Roman world, it would have brought up heavily political images, images of kings and kingdoms and power dynamics. Uh, so here's one example. There's many of these if you want to nerd out on archaeology, but this is a famous one. And this inscription was written in AD 9. There'll be, I think, a picture coming up uh, of, of what we found. And, and this inscription mandated the birthday of the Emperor Augustus, who would then, that birthday would then mark the beginning of the Asian calendar. And here's what, you know, it, it, you, you can't read it, obviously, but here's what it says. It says, uh, since providence, which created all things, and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of euangelion for the world, or good news for the world. Uh, so there's many other inscriptions like this. So the New Testament writers were well aware of all this. So not only do they have the Old Testament background in mind, but they have this. So in their mind, the Roman Empire had its own good news. It had its own gospel. And that gospel was that Caesar, whoever the Caesar was, and this was true for every Caesar, that Caesar was king and savior of the world. Well, <laughs> the New Testament writers are not, like, not so quickly, not, not so quickly. So how does the New Testament use this word? With all that background, let's bring it all into the New Testament. We're going to go through a bunch of different scriptures quickly here. It uses the word euangelion 77 times. And so keep in your mind as we go through the scriptures, how would Jesus, how would these writers have defined the word? That's what we're after in this message today. So how did the gospel writers, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Mark is the earliest, and in verse 1, he goes there immediately. This is what uh, Mark writes, the beginning of the euangelion about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So for Mark and the other gospel writers, they believe the gospel was good news about Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. How did Jesus define the gospel? In very much the same way. We see this in Mark 1, just a little, little bit further down, Mark 1.15. This is the first time Mark, in his eyewitness accounts, quotes Jesus. And here's what he has Jesus, the incarnate God, saying. Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the euangelion, or the good news. Six times, Matthew and Luke, other eyewitness accounts, uh, note that Jesus was traveling around, this was a phrase they used six times, proclaiming the euangelion of the kingdom. So Jewish people in Jesus' day, uh, they understood the phrase uh, kingdom of God, or Matthew uses kingdom of heaven in a similar way that the people in the Hebrew scriptures did. 
that God's people were exiled and enslaved under the boot of Rome. And the euangelion was that God was going to send someone, the Messiah or the Christ, to rescue and restore and redeem them. Uh, so they also, most of them, expected a specific Christ or Messiah figure. The good news that the eyewitness writers, uh, I, the gospel eyewitness writers are announcing and that Jesus himself announces is Jesus is essentially like, that kingdom's here. It's arrived. And I'm the king. That's essentially what the message of, of the gospel is. So we see this reflected also in the writings of, of other writers in the New Testament as well. Here's a couple examples from Acts. Uh, but when they believed, Philip, as he proclaimed the euangelion of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Further on, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He, Paul, witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Uh, later, uh, Paul's in Rome for two years, and we're told that all during that time, Paul spent his time proclaiming the kingdom of God and the teaching about Jesus. So we're seeing the same themes carry on. So this gospel that Jesus proclaimed in the writers is about the kingdom of God, the arrival of the kingdom of God, and the king who Jesus is claiming to be. Let's go back to the, the scripture that Emily read, 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. In this scripture, Paul is saying, this is the gospel that I received. So this is important. And so let's reread that. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. Okay, a couple of things. Paul's saying uh, this gospel that I uh, received and passed on to you. Scholars think that this chapter and a lot of the words in this chapter our oral tradition that the church created as kind of a creed to use in their church services, maybe within a couple of years after Jesus' resurrection, to remind them of the gospel, the core. And Paul's like, I received this. We all know this. We've all been saying this since the beginning, and he's just writing it down for us. So that's important. He also says it's according to the scriptures. Paul isn't making this up. It's heavily connected to the Hebrew scriptures and the story that comes from the Hebrew scriptures, the promises of the Messiah that comes from the Hebrew scriptures. Paul also says this gospel, it saves, and that's important, and it means way more than you probably think it means. And then he kind of says, here are the key facts of the story of the gospel. He says that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, again, according to the promises of the Old Testament, and, and then Jesus appeared. Now, here's something that you probably didn't note because of our mindset as Western readers. Go back and look at it, and Paul really specifically refers to Jesus throughout this as Christ. To us, that just sounds like another way of saying Jesus. It's not. It's really, really intentional. That is the word, the Hebrew idea of Messiah, the long-promised king that would come to bring the kingdom of God to make all things right. Paul's pulling that into this recapitulation of the gospel, this oral tradition that explains to us the gospel. Furthermore, he's not done. He spent some time in the middle of this chapter kind of talking about what he said, and then scholars are pretty sure he returns to the oral tradition 
and continues in verse 21. Let's continue. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes from a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here it is. This is the gospel is not just some kind of theological formula to get us into heaven. It's not a roadmap to heaven. It's a story that begins in the Old Testament with God's promises to make all things right and to send a Messiah. And it culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's a royal announcement, if you will. Of, of the king that has finally come and arrived to bring the kingdom of God that will invade and usurp and dominate and destroy every other kingdom. And it would set up its kingdom to reign again on the earth. This gospel that the, that the writers of scripture preached was a direct challenge to Caesar and the gospel of the day. Their gospel was Caesar's king and his savior of the world. And they're like, uh-uh, <laughs> the king of kings and the Lord of lords has come and his kingdom is coming. The gospel, as I reminded you as our main point today, is bigger and better than we could ever imagine. All right, time for a definition. So this is a working definition, meaning that it could change, but I'm working with it and I haven't gone public with it. This is the first time you get to hear it going public. So give me your feedback. It's not perfect, but I've been really praying and wrestling like, what is the gospel? This is, this is the best I have right now. The gospel is an invitation for anyone and everyone to trust Jesus the Christ as life-giving king and enter his kingdom where all things are made right. That's pretty good, I think. <laughs> you tell me. So let's talk about that in a second. So this, the gospel is for anyone and everyone. It, it, there, there's, there's no favorites here. It's grace. The gospel isn't earned. We don't get it because we're privileged. It's, it's, we're, we're invited to enter into it as a gift. So that's one point. Um, this gospel is only experienced by trusting King Jesus as our life-giving king. Salvation is found in no other name. So at the center of the gospel, of any gospel definition, has to be King Jesus. That's the very heart of any gospel, and that's there, right there. And then uh, we are to enter into the kingdom, and that's not a waiting to get into heaven when we die. That's a present earth thing. The minute we begin to look to King Jesus as our life-giving king, we enter the gospel right then. We enter into, into life. And the line that I used to describe the kingdom is, is the place where all things are made right. That is the idea of the Old Testament word shalom, where just everything's made right. Everything that was ever wrong then happened in the fall and, and the, the coming of sin and the destruction in human hearts and the world and relationships. Shalom sets that right. And that's what Jesus' goal is of king in the new kingdom. Everything that's ever been wrong, he's going to set right. That's the promises of the kingdom of God. And at the heart of that, how does King Jesus do that? Is he just like a really good king? No, the heart of that is the cross. The heart of that is, is the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross is not only the place in our gospel or of sacrifice, it is certainly that. The cross is also the inauguration of our king. It's where he was crowned. It's where he conquered sin and death and all manner of evil. It's the engine of the entire gospel. It's ground zero for God's worldwide restoration plan. The gospel is bigger 
and better than we could ever imagine. Here's another way. I'm gonna give you a bunch of different ways to kind of challenge how you think about these things. Maybe this will help. I made a list of how I would define how we treat the shrunken gospel, which is not untrue, it's just partial, and then how I would define the full gospel. So the shrunken gospel is really individually based. It's me, it's my personal salvation. The true gospel is more collective. It's, it's everyone, everyone's invited. The shrunken gospel is transactional. I say this or this, or I believe this or this, I get this. The true gospel is, is transformational. It's continually working itself out in us. The, the shrunken gospel is one time, it's a decision, it's a moment. The true gospel is discipleship. It's ongoing, it has its way with us, it continues to work in us and through us. The shrunken gospel is obligation. You hear this often when people share the shrunken gospel. You gotta do this, it's almost like a threat. You gotta do this or the real gospel is an invitation. Jesus is like, enter the kingdom, come, I'm the source of life, follow me. The shrunken gospel is we're saved from something. The true gospel is we're saved for something. The shrunken gospel is all just about humanity. The true gospel is about all things. All things will be made right. The shrunken gospel is about life later after we die. The true gospel is about life now. And finally, the shrunken gospel is about a story we must believe. And the true gospel is about a story we're invited to enter. I hope that's helpful as we wrestle. And I know we're wrestling in real time with this, but this is important stuff. All right, a couple practical thoughts as we kind of wind down this message on what is the gospel. Um, one, I think we need to tell a better story. We need to tell a better story. The English word gospel comes from the old English word God spell, which literally means a good tale or a good story. And this is something I challenge all of us on. It's a way to reframe what the gospel is. I think good news is an accurate definition. I think a better definition is it's a good story. When we think of it as a good story, it seems to kind of come alive in our hearts and there's nothing like a good story. I think we all know that. When I'm preaching it, I'm just given a bunch of points and reading scripture, you guys are like, you know, starting to fall asleep. And, when I, and then when I start to tell a story, all of you are like awake. We love good stories. Uh, our family, we read, we've read to our girls since they were babies. We love as a family to read good stories. We read every night uh, in different ways together. And we've, we've read, and some of us have read uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien together. They were followers of Jesus, scholars that understood they had to write stories to get people to understand the gospel. So our, our family has, has, has read Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and, and series like the Windfeather Saga. And then we're also reading the Harry Potter series right now as a family all together. And uh, great stories. There's nothing like a good story. So the next time we think about sharing the gospel, we often start, if you grow up in church, like, hey, I want to tell you these things, these propositional truths, and you need to believe them. Instead of going that route, just sit somebody down and say, hey, I want to tell you a story. We need to tell better stories. Second, uh, eternal life starts now. Eternal life starts now. The shrunken gospel promises life when we die, and that's true, but it's just partially true. It's a shrunken gospel. The full gospel promises life right now. Uh, the shrunken gospel is about you know dying and going to heaven. The full gospel is about experiencing heaven on earth. So let's go to the most famous verse in all the Bible to, to prove out this point. John 3, 16. Uh, it reads, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, uh, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Now, that, that Greek word, the Greek word for eternal, literally means to last for an age. 
or to last for an era of time. Jesus in this chapter of John 3 is explaining to Nicodemus how he can enter the kingdom. Back to that idea. Uh, it, it, he's explaining it to him. And then he promises if he looks to him, as he trusts Jesus as his life-giving king, that he will experience eternal life. And in our minds, we think he's talking about in the future after Nicodemus dies. Nicodemus would have never understood it that way. He would have understood that life connected to the kingdom of God that Jesus was offering Nicodemus to enter right then and right there. That's what eternal life is. It's life that is experienced in the kingdom of God. A better way to translate that verse would be whoever believes in Jesus will begin to experience life that will never end. Eternal life starts now once we look to and trust Jesus as our life-giving king. Maybe this is a weird analogy, but I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. I thought about it the other day. It's kind of like if somebody would come to you, if you're a homeowner, and said, hey, I want to give you a gift. I, I heard that you don't have fire insurance for your house, and like, I want to gift you fire insurance. And I think all of us would be like, cool, it's like in this day and age with wildfires, it's good to have fire insurance. And that would be good news, right? Like, thanks, that's, that's awesome that you gave me fire insurance. That's kind of the shrunken gospel. The full gospel would be somebody coming to you saying, like, I want to buy you a new house. <laughs> that's the difference in the shrunken gospel and the full gospel. I don't know if that's confusing or helpful, but it was helpful to me. All right, um, another way of thinking, we need pictures. So um, here, here's, you'll see the first picture come up, and the bottom line is kind of like our life on earth, our experience on earth. The top line is light, life in heaven. I think most of us think that, you know, even as we look to Jesus and we're a Christian and we follow Jesus, we just continue on kind of that, that earth plane. And then at some point, abruptly, we hit the wall of death. <laughs> and kind of once we hit the wall of death, whoo, right up to heaven. And it's just abrupt and like sudden and almost violent. That's how most of us, I think, see things. And I think that's why most Christians like fear death just like early people do. Like that just seems like, ah, I don't think that's what scripture's saying at all. That's that shrunken gospel of like, we gotta wait till we die to experience life. I don't think that's what Jesus or the writers in the New Testament are saying. Here's a second graph. I think this is more accurate. And that's the moment we look to Jesus and trust him as our life-giving king, we are invited to begin to step in to experience heaven on earth. We're beginning to step into the kingdom and experience kingdom life, the same that we will experience when we do die. We'll experience that fully, but we can begin to fully, I think, even experience it here on earth. And as we grow as disciples, we experience it more and more and more and more and more and more and more, so that when we do experience death finally, it's like the writer of scripture, it's like just stepping behind a veil. It's just like that quick. Dallas Willard is an author and philosopher and writer, brilliant guy, I just love his writings. And uh, he, he uh, passed away a few years ago from cancer. And when he, when he knew his cancer was terminal, he invited a friend to walk with him through that journey. And reading some of those uh, writings are just deeply impactful for my life. And Dallas was famous for saying that he wanted to so enter the kingdom today on earth before he died, so that when he actually died, it would take him a while to realize he had died. <laughs> which is awesome, you know? And he's kind of said, yeah, some people, they don't do that. They just pray a prayer and wait to, you know, hold off until they, they die to experience Jesus. You know, they'll, they'll be there in heaven with us too, but they won't know what to do. You know, they won't know how to live. Uh, what a incredible view of the gospel. It's so much bigger and better than we could ever imagine. Someone once asked Dallas, what is the gospel? And he goes, oh, the gospel is how you get into heaven before you die. Love that. 
And that's going to challenge a lot of us to like reframe this gospel in ways that, that we haven't thought of before. All right, last point. Last kind of practical idea before we close this thing out. Um, followers of Jesus should be, here's a new word for you, gospeling. I think, I think that's kind of a made-up word. But here's the deal. Uh, in the English, there's no verb form of gospel. Uh, I mean, I, we just kind of created it, gospeling. In the Greek, there is. And we see that, go back to our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 1a, it's the first thing Paul says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. That's not a good translation. It should say the gospel I gospeled to you. It's the same word, but in verb form. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I gospeled to you. We should be gospeling. Paul didn't just tell them the good news. It wasn't like he sat down and kind of like, okay, here's the story that you need. He lived into it. He was fully into the kingdom of God and living it out for these churches to see, inviting them all to join him in gospeling. And the church desperately needs to be gospeling. Uh, there's a famous quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. No one really knows, but it's a great quote. And it says this, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Well, yes, we're meant to use words to proclaim the gospel for sure, but even more so we're meant to embody the story and live into the story. Churches are supposed to be previews of the kingdom of God, a sampling of the kingdom of God, a foretaste of the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be colonies of heaven, little pockets of kingdom life on earth. So when people see it and experience it, they're like, what? This is what's coming. I can experience this now. We're to bear witness that the kingdom of God is here. Here's the deal. To come full circle, here's our problem. The shrunken gospel that Jesus died for our sins and we just pray a prayer and believe that and invite him into our heart and to hold on before we die. Well, <laughs> true, it's partial, it's inadequate. And that shrunken gospel will not provide followers of Jesus in churches, will not empower them and envision them with the ability to give people a foretaste of heaven. I think that's the problem. Most churches just are, are minor revisions of the kingdom of the world, to be honest. Uh, we need to rethink and re-enter the full gospel to become the church that God has created us to be. The gospel is an invitation for anyone and everyone to trust Jesus as their life-giving king and enter his kingdom where all things are made right. It's bigger, it's better than we could ever imagine. What, it, what, it, what does Jesus want from us out of this? Well, you might say, okay, great, John. That was pretty nerdy talk. Thanks for that. And like, what, what, what would I do with that? Here's what you do. Let's go back to Jesus' first words that Mark records. Jesus says, he went into Galilee proclaiming the euangelion of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. It's here. He's like, I'm king. It's here. Here's what he, here's what he wants us to do. Repent and believe the euangelion, repent and believe the good news. Those are churchy words, right? But not really, they're, they're heavily drenched in scripture. The word repent comes from the Old Testament, return. It just means return from. Uh, I don't know what your journey is today. What, what, what kingdoms are, what kings or kingdoms are you following? I, I follow a lot of like pretender kings and imposter kings that, that aren't anywhere close to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Look, what, what's, what's going on in your heart? Who are you worshiping? Who are you bowing the knee to? That's who Jesus was talking to. He's talking to us today. And he's like, turn from that. It's natural. Our hearts are broken. Turn from that, Jesus says. And look to me as your life-giving king. Enter my kingdom today. Believe. This word could be translated allegiance. 
Jesus wants our allegiance. He wants us all in, not just our, our mental assent. He wants our allegiance. And the invitation I'm giving to you, I'm giving to myself, it's not a one-time decision. It's a daily decision. It's an hourly decision. The kingdom of God is here among us. The king reigns. The king is coming to make all things right. The king is making all things right. Turn from false kingdoms. Look to Jesus as our life-giving king. Give him our allegiance and enter the kingdom of day and partner with the spirit of God in our world to bring kingdom come and to make all things right. The gospel is bigger and it's better than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. God, thanks. Uh, thanks for this fresh look. I think it's scripture. I've been coming up in church all these years. I mean, even recently, I realized how shrunken my gospel had become. And it's, it's been a game changer for me, God, to, to realize from your word and from the mouth of your son, the gospel is so much bigger and better than what I thought it was. And it, make, it gives me hope, God. It gives me hope that, that not only uh, are, you, are you saving us as, as people that are broken and, and alienated from you apart from the cross, that is happening in the gospel, but you're doing so much more. You're inviting us right now into life, into kingdom living, to, to image you and to, to show people what it looks like to enter the kingdom and follow the king, to, to experience and taste shalom, what we were meant to experience in the garden of all things being made right. You, you're inviting that, us into that right now, God. And what a privilege, God. Thank you for that. I pray, God, for people who are hearing this message today and wrestling with it and, and maybe even troubled by it. I hope they're troubled in a good way, that they get on their knees and get into your word. And we as a community would rediscover the good news, that it would have its way with us in a way that totally, absolutely reorients everything in our lives around King Jesus uh, for your glory and for kingdom come. We pray this in the matchless name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.